Tonight I'd like to talk about, explore the concept and the reality of what is called not-self. And um, I'll throw in a little bit of self here and there as well. But to explore this topic requires quite an open mind, not coming down on one side or another, but really looking in a very kind of fresh way. And if you don't understand all of it, it's okay. Um, sometimes there's the seed effect where a little bit of a seed is planted and then it, it blooms forth at another point. I'm working with the subject with a group in Cambridge and um, it's very interesting. There's a lot that people don't understand and they're delighting in it. <laughs> they're a group of yogis on a little bit on the older side. And um, it's kind of nice to not be the one who knows, you know, which is really what you enter into with this realm, is you can't be the one who knows if there's no one to know. <laughs> Get it? <laughs> so, <laughs> we don't want to attach to the concept of not-self. The Dalai Lama once said, if you have to choose between compassion and emptiness, choose compassion. <laughs> now, <laughs> luckily we don't have to choose. We can go into both arenas at once. Uh, but you know, what he was pointing to is that sometimes with the holding on to the idea of emptiness, not emptiness itself, there's a little bit of rigidity occurring or um, it's just in the mind. And Thich Nhat Hanh once said, better to be attached to self than to non-self. <laughs> Which I like very much, too. <laughs> you know, it's safer, it's more realistic, at least you're not like floating around in you know, delusion. Um, Narkarjuna said, emptiness has been said by the Buddhas to be the relinquishment of views. But they have also said that those who hold to the view of emptiness are incurable. <laughs> so I think you get my point. Uh, not to hold the view, I have a self or I don't have a self. Both of those are a problem and not true. That's what I meant by not coming down on either side. You know, because it's really just a view. From a practical um vantage point. Uh, this is something that one wants to reflect upon, but um, you don't want to overly think yourself into it either, or as Ajahn Chah said, your mind will burst. So, I mean, how can the mind hold this? It can't, and that's why it has to go into something real, something, something substantial really has to reside from the heart. And that's really the only place that change takes place in any way. So both are obstructions, this view, I have a self or I don't have a self. Instead, what we want to do is look and explore with a very open mind and see if we can see things more clearly beyond our beliefs that, of course, I have a self. Or maybe if you're an older yogi, of course I don't have a self. Now that's too easy too. You know? But to really look deeply, 
from moment to moment, seeing clearly without mental projections and recognizing that in the seeing, there is just the seeing. In the hearing, there is just the hearing. In the thinking, there is just the thinking. In the smelling, there is just the smelling. In the tasting, there is just the tasting. I think I might have left one out, but you can fill that one in. So I want to begin with um, a particular model that I like very much. It's uh, a Zen model, or it sometimes is used in Zen practice. It's not so much talked about in Vipassana practice, but I find it quite helpful in this exploration of not-self. <clears throat> and this model is a model of um, small self, universal or big self, and not-self. And when you hear this, you can think that it's all very convenient and linear. You know, you work with small self for years and years and years, and then all of a sudden you move into big self, you know, and then big self drops away and no self forever, that kind of thing. <laughs> not even, you know, not any semblance of self creeping in. But life is, you know, this is, it's just a model. Yeah. So... Um, there's fluidity within this model, so not to attach to the model, but I do find it a helpful way to begin to explore this topic, which is crucial to liberation. So what is meant by small self is what we think about ourselves. You've been watching your minds all week, and some of what you may have noticed, I'm sure you've noticed, is various ideas you have about who you think you are. Now, you may have noticed that there are repetitive emotions occurring or you know, certain stories or certain patterns of mind. And you may think that you've discovered a little bit more about yourself, and it's true, you have. Now, this is what's known as small self, really seeing into patterns of mind that you didn't know you had, noticing the repetition. Sometimes without meditation, we don't notice that thoughts are as repetitive as they are. Now, we might be aware that there are particularly strong emotions occurring, and we can identify that. But oftentimes, without a meditative practice, we're not aware of the belief systems we have because we believe in them. You know? We're not aware of the various attitudes we carry about, about ourselves because it's obviously how we are. It's obviously how things are. So to look in a meditative way, we begin to notice what those attitudes are. We begin to be aware of how we are thinking about ourselves. And this is crucial because this is one way that change comes about. For instance, if we can notice that we have enormous feelings of unworthiness or of arrogance, or of helplessness, or of despair, or of anger, or whatever it may be. That's really, really helpful. Because then we can work with these states of mind really creatively. You know, in other words, with anger, we can really bring in the practice of metta and work quite um, seriously with the metta practice. And over time, with diligence, with earnestness, we will see change. Certainly, we will see change. We will see that the anger shifts and is not the same anymore. With feelings of unworthiness, 
we can notice that this is what we think about ourselves because of events from the past, because of what we've been told about ourselves and have believed. You know, inevitably, we can work with these feelings of unworthiness in a really creative, meditative way. We can be aware every time a feeling or thought of unworthiness arises. We can be aware that that is what is happening, that this is how we are viewing ourselves. And we can question it instead of believing in it. We can begin to drop our assumptions and question these states of mind, these things that we've been told. I mean, we're told all sorts of things. We're lazy, we're, you know, meditators often when their children are told they're lazy a lot (laughs) because the interests are sometimes a little bit different and, you know, kind of what's looked at as productive in the world. Sometimes meditators on an instinctive level don't ever buy into. So, you know. Um, but being told that you're lazy or being told that you're, you know, you're this or you're that, whatever it might be. And then, of course, taking it in, believing in it. And knowing this is how change can come about. We can also use the metta practice with feelings of deep unworthiness. And gradually, we will see change. We will see change. It's pretty much inevitable if we stay with it. practice addresses this as well, this dimension of being this small self. Because practice tends to make the mind whole. It heals fragmentation. And it brings the mind together. It makes the mind whole. It makes the mind whole as well, not just through concentration, which I spoke about the other night, but also because of letting go of the unwholesome, letting go of that which is inwardly divisive, that which separates us from others, that which we know is going to be of no help for us or for others. So really getting to know the states of misery and recognizing that we don't have to nurture them We don't have any control, as you've heard, about whether they arise or not. But where practice comes in is that we can choose not to nurture that which is unwholesome. And we can choose to nurture that which is wholesome. We can choose to nurture compassion, as we have been doing and did specifically a couple days ago. We can choose to nurture loving kindness. We can choose to nurture feelings of joy, joy for ourselves and joy for other people's happiness. We can choose to nurture equanimity and wisdom. So this is really profound, this this, um, ability to choose what we want to nurture in our life, in our minds, and what we know we need to let go of. Just to know that, what is wholesome and what is not, already the healing is happening. Already the life, the mind is coming together, is, is becoming whole, is healing the, the fragmentation, the ways that we've tried to protect ourselves, tried to defend ourselves from our fears and our insecurities. And instead, we, we rest on a firm foundation of knowing what 
really is wholesome and what is not, what is going to lead to conflict and divisiveness and inner separation. This has to do with the development of the character. Uh, this is in this small self work. We work with development of character and we really attempt to appreciate and cultivate what are called the paramis, which um, basically is, is translated as virtues and things like generosity and loving kindness and equanimity and truthfulness and ethics, things like that. So really working with these, these paramis within. Also, practice does oftentimes, not, not always in my observation, but oftentimes it brings about a change in what we might call the personality or the persona. Um, I've seen this in myself and I've seen this in others throughout my years of observing this. Um, it often happens when the attempt is very sincere to pay attention to all dimensions of one's life, not just this one or that one, and not to try to spring into no-self without a firm basis of knowing yourself fully. Um, so, so this devotion to embracing all of one's life as being important, you know, one's relationship life, one's work life, one's toothbrush life, really bringing it all into focus, you know, seeing it all as important. Oftentimes the personality or, or the persona, what we know as persona, kind of does change. I, as I told you before, I started this practice when I was in my early 20s, and I was enormously confused at that point, maybe as all, you know, really early 20-year-olds are. Um, not to insult those of you who are very... <laughs> Our early 20s and are enormously clear. <laughs> but as for me, I was really confused. <laughs> and I was, um, and this is not the way all 20-year-olds are, I was extremely spacey, really spacey. I would, do, I would lose my keys all the time. Um, the short amount of time that I had a car, I would constantly forget to put gas in it. So I would run out of gas Consist fairly consistently, actually. <laughs> I had a really hard time with directions, which um, actually Michael <laughs> might say I still have a hard time with. <laughs> this is still a little bit of a weak area. <laughs> but things would happen, and I, I wouldn't know how they would happen. I mean, I, once I remember that I um, lost my shoes, and... <laughs> And I found that I, I, I found one shoe in the trunk of a car in Connecticut. <laughs> and then I got a phone call that my other shoe was in California. <laughs> How did it happen? I have no idea. I still don't have any idea. <laughs> so <laughs> what began to happen, thank goodness, is that I began to practice. And, you know, you could say that all of this spaciness was a basic lack of mindfulness, which of course it was. But as well as lack of mindfulness, there also was a little bit of a persona about it, a little bit of a kind of an attachment to personality about it. Because my friends and my family kind of got a kick out of it. You know? I mean, it was annoying, of course, and it was, you know, people would get upset with me. But basically, 
um, people would laugh at me, you know, in, a, in an affectionate way. So it kind of gave them that chance to laugh affectionate. Oh, there she's doing this again. You know, once I was on a train and I, um, I, I, I went to the bathroom and I, I missed my stop. You know, <laughs> so I was in the bathroom. And this was a train I knew really well. I mean, first comes Mystic, then comes Old Saybrook, then comes New Haven. You get off at New Haven. Why did I go to the bathroom just before New Haven? <laughs> huh? So people waiting for me and me not getting off. But anyway, there was this kind of good-hearted affection about it, basically. And, you know, people accepted me on, on a basic level. But, you know, it wasn't so great for me. So I started with the practice and, you know, slowly I began to find my keys. I knew where my shoes were, either in the closet or on my feet. It was really <laughs> pretty, pretty clear cut what was happening. And it, this, you know, began to come together. But it was really interesting. Um, my, my family and my friends were a little taken aback. You know, they weren't used to um, me knowing where my keys were, etc. And um, they had to shift. They had to adjust to this. They were thinking, oh, you know, she's getting too serious or things like this. And I, I even had a, a cousin who, uh, a very direct and honest person, who told me that she was starting to miss me. You know? She missed me. She missed the, the person who, you know, would, would leave their shoes all over the place. Yeah? And I, I thought it was so adorable and poignant. Yeah, yeah. But what, what um, I felt at that point was that um, there was a bit of a shift for me as well, and there were feelings of losing something. And obviously what I was losing was that kind of personality. But it was interesting to see the attachment, um, which I hadn't even known was there when I was involved in it. I was just living my life. Seeing the attachment really came after, or in the shift, that there was a little bit of, ta of attachment, you know, to be seen, be seen as, you know, carefree and, you know, child of the universe and, you know, all this stuff. There was a little bit of an attachment there. So um, I do feel that, that the personality does shift if you're really extroverted, you know, overly extroverted, and you kind of always need to be the center of attention and always feel like, you know what to say and, you know, you have the right thing to say, um, that starts to change. Now, it's a combination, of course, of practice and good friends and teachers and this kind of thing. But that begins to change. If you're a person who thinks of yourself as very shy, very introverted, that begins to, sh to change because one sees the reasons for the shyness. One begins to come out a little bit. So this balancing does happen in this realm of small self. It doesn't, it doesn't inevitably happen, though. I mean, I think it's something that one has to value, or else you can kind of try to overshoot into non-self. Um, so I think this is a choice that one has to make to bring the attention to all areas of one's life, even those areas that one would prefer uh, to ignore, you know, and kind of to withdraw into shyness or to indulge in whatever the personality trait may be. So there's an order in one's life that we find from meditation, coming out of meditation. We've, we put our life in order. We put our ethical life in order. We begin to work on the ethical life. Um, we put our life in order 
in terms of our relationships as much as we possibly can. Um, we put our work life in order as much as we possibly can. And this is, this is meditative work to do this. It's really important. And it's not always work we can do on the cushion. It's work we have to do to live a balanced and sane life. <clears throat> so another way of looking at this is that it's um, psychological health, that psychological health can come out of practice. And um, we, we learn to connect our ideas and our goals and our aspirations in life to our actions. You know, so we're not just adrift in our minds having these these goals and ideas and things we want to do, jobs we want to get, you know, relationships we want to be in, that kind of thing. We try to actually connect the two so that our actions are in line with what our aspirations are. We begin to do that kind of work. And we, in a sense, move from a scattered sense of small self to a concentrated self. We begin practice, all of us, most of us, all of us, being quite scattered. You know, whatever our job has been, even if we're a nuclear physicist, which I meet in Cambridge, actually, from time to time, they sit down to practice, and you know, the mind is not cooperating the way they've been used to the mind cooperating to do very intricate kind of thinking work. You know, everybody's a beginner in this practice. Yeah. So that's the movement. Through practice, we move from the mind being scattered to the mind being concentrated. And when the mind is concentrated, there is more steadiness in life. There is more of an ability to go in the direction that we want to go in, in our daily life. There is an ability to heal our relationships and to be in a relationship if we want to be in a relationship, to not be in one if one doesn't want to be in one, to know what one wants, to find work that's satisfying for one, and concentration is usually necessary for that to happen. And, you know, in this, in this work of small self, meditative work, um, we work a lot with self-acceptance, very much. We work to see if we can accept that which we don't like about ourselves. We work to see if we can accept the unbidden, unasked for, full range of being a human being, emotions, strong emotions, thoughts that we never knew we had and wished we didn't. You know? We work with accepting all of parts of ourselves. And this, of course, helps us to soften in our relationships with others, you know, to relate to others with more sympathy, more understanding, more compassion, more acceptance. So, <laughs> moving along, the second is universal self or big self. And this is when we hit samadhi places in practice. Yeah. This is when there's very strong sense of concentration that arises in practice. And there can be the sense that we're one with the universe, a very powerful sense, a very clear sense of being one with the universe, or a very clear sense that we are the universe. Yeah. But some sense of unification, that's the key with this big self, universal self, is that there's a sense of unification. 
there's a sense of being um, expansive and extremely grounded, extremely settled, and confident because we're seeing into a part of the mind that we had no idea even existed. Uh, so it's, it's confidence building because we can see the different kinds of things that can happen in this, in this mind that, you know, although we may have read a lot, um, is a surprise that it's actually true. However, sometimes people stop at this place, and to stop here is an error. It's really a big error. It's really, it's really brings suffering. Because when we stop in this place, what I mean by this is that we attach to big self. We attach to universal self. And it's really a funny thing, but something I've noticed when people go through this is the experience itself is what it is. You know, it's, it's embracing, it's, it's vast, it's great. But sometimes when people come out of it after they've had the experience, there's kind of this sense of being at one with the universe when no one else is. No? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's one of those really odd things. But I have noticed it time after time after time again, you know? I am one with you, but you're not one with me. <laughs> Some, something along those lines. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, a, it's a really strange thing. Yeah, it, and it's more common than not, actually. So it's something that one really wants to be aware of and look into. And if it's happened or if it hasn't happened yet, you know, to, to be alert to it. Because it's so easy to attach in this way. What we do need to see is that all experiences are limited and are not going to bring lasting happiness, including experiences of concentration, including experience of unific experiences of unification. You know, that it's basically something that is transitory that's going to come and go. Meditative experiences are sometimes a lot harder to let go of than other experiences. You know. Sometimes, because it, it seems like you shouldn't have to. And they're very refined and very subtle. And you think, well, finally something is happening, and it's wonderful, and, you know, why can't I just stay here forever? And the problem is that you can't. I mean, you will see this on your own. Um, but sometimes we kind of, you know, are really annoying for our friends um, until we see it on our own. So I'm pointing this out um, just in case. <laughs> You're either in it or, you know, you, you will be. Yeah. So we do have to take the next step. And the next step is the looking into, seeing into not-self. One way, of course, to see into this is to observe, be mindful of experiences of samadhi, instead of getting stuck or lost in samadhi. See if we can be aware in the middle of it. Now see if we can be mindful that these experiences are happening. But also just to look deeply at our experience in life. This is really what brings us into that which is it, which is noticing really knowing for ourselves in our hearts that 
The sense of self that we carry around with us, whether it's good or bad, or a wonderful self or a terrible self, is a burden. Is a burden and needs to be put down. No self is a sense of transparency, of of non-solidity. One description I've always liked is that there's a there's a sky there's a, a, a I don't know how to say this the this, the mind is like the sky you know it's sky like you look up and it's vast and you know there's clouds moving through it but it's empty it's empty it's absolutely vast and limitless and empty and that's that's an inkling of no self I mean that's that's really cor- corresponds to the mind that is not clinging to ideas of self. It's not like it's trying to get rid of self or trying to get rid of small self or universal self or anything like that. It's seeing that the self is built from thoughts, our attachments to what we think about ourselves, what we think of ourselves. When we stop believing in the solidity of thoughts, we get a glimpse. When we're willing to observe our thinking, Instead of believing our thinking, we get a glimpse. We get a glimpse of no self in seeing through and dissolving all fixed concepts and ideas of self. Seeing through the belief that we have in there being an independently existing, unchanging entity that is independent of conditions. We get a glimpse. The Buddha was said to have had and totally open mind. And by open, you could say that there was the knowing that there was no limitation. He wasn't defining himself through the thoughts that were arising from moment to moment. He wasn't defining himself through the body that was there. He wasn't defining himself through the mental states that were arising and passing away. There was totally a swinging door you know, coming in and going out, coming in, going out. Instead of coming in, getting stuck, becoming a self, you know, it was just, just allowing for the coming in and going out, totally open, not resisting, you know, no resistance. This is what we find in practice for ourselves. It's an open response to life instead of living our life with reactivity, pushing away this and holding on to that. It's living in an open way, responsive to the elements of life. Living within freedom, within ease, within peace. With not self, there is a lack of self-centeredness. We're not settled in on this definition of who we are. Again, even if it's a wonderful definition of who we are, it's it's still kind of moldy or congested, you know? It's still, it doesn't, it's not, there's no, there's no, none of oxygen in there. You know, it's still limited. So this lack of self-centeredness in which there is no sense of demanding anything from the world, that the world be a particular way to fit my particular desires. Because we see what happens. You know, all of us have a million different desires. Unfortunately, they all collide. I mean, maybe if we had all the same, it would be a different story. But things being as they are, we have enormous variety of desires. And so the colliding is what brings about so much conflict. 
So with the realization of not-self, there is less of, of a demand that the world fit my particular desires. And also, less of a demand that oneself fit one's particular ideas about who you should be. I mean, we're very demanding of this, this little self, that we be a particular way, that we live up to particular expectations we have. It's so not relaxing. Yeah? <laughs> hmm. It's to some degree we let go of attachment and we learn how to connect from moment to moment. When there is connection, there is no self. There's no one who is connecting. There is really just connection. You could call it a luminous knowing from moment to moment. And there's a sense of everything inside being just okay, inwardly normal, you know, inwardly natural, not, not disturbed, not worried, but inwardly just fine, just at ease. There's a Thai word, it's called kwam wong. And what it means is a voidness that includes ease, peace, and freedom. And I would also say this voidness is the same as openness. And when I was talking about the Buddha having an open mind or a skylight, a, sk- a skylike mind, not a sky, what's the word? <laughs> skylight mind. Yeah. A skylike mind. Yeah. Um, so there, there being that openness there, you know, that there being nothing to hold on to, nothing to push away. This is where satipanya comes in. You know, and this is our, pa- our practice. We haven't probably used this word yet. But satipanya means mindfulness and wisdom. The mindfulness makes contact, and out of that contact, there is learning. Sometimes mindfulness is used in a bit too of an efficient way in the culture these days. You know, it's too mindful so that we can get better relationships, or mindful so that we can get this or get that, or, you know, feel better about ourselves. And I'm not putting that down because all of that is important. But there is a transcendent aspect to mindfulness that is, is really, I mean, a shame if we miss it. A shame if we miss it. And that transcendent aspect is learning about the nature of life through mindfulness. Not only about our personal histories, as important as that is, but as well about the nature of life, that which is truly liberating, ultimately freeing. The instinct of clinging to the idea of self is what could be known as dukkha, which means that it's oppressive. There's a sense of burning, of it being constrictive in some way, which we experience at some point. Mindfulness and wisdom, satipanya, see into I am. It sees into the I am as it arises from moment to moment. We move from the concept of I am to actually experiencing things as they are from moment to moment. So it's the difference between the thought versus the characteristics of the experience itself. When we're aware of the characteristics of any experience, we're not engaged in I am experiencing this. We're really just aware of experience itself. So the thought, you know, I am a good meditator, 
I am a bad meditator. I am a sad person. I am a happy person. I am stuck in traffic. You know, whatever that may be, what we want to do is let go of the I am in favor of life, in favor of the actuality of the experience. In attending to the actual experience, we leave behind the contraction of I am. We see clearly that experiences are conditioned, are out of control, and arise and pass away. What this does is it gradually erodes the concept of there being a fixed, independent, unchanging self. We see that the I am changes according to conditions. We recognize that in hearing, there is just the hearing. In seeing, there is just the seeing. In sensing, there is just the sensing. Looking throughout a day, you can notice the I am very strongly at times. And then other times you may notice that it's softer, or sometimes it's not there at all, when there is just this simple ease of being um, happening in, in a given moment. And it's, it's helpful just to, to notice this. So instead of fixating on I am, we want to see that, for instance, peace is happening right now. Instead of I am um, happy, we want to see that happiness is just happening right now. Yeah. In other words, we want to drop off the I am and see, ah, oh, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening, hearing is happening, seeing is happening, feeling is happening. To reduce the contraction of the I, what we need to do is to reduce our attachments to I, as in, I am this or I am that, I am special, I am a jerk. Also, our attachment to mine, taking things as belonging to me. I found this great thing in the New York Times, the last page of the New York Times. And just to give you some examples of what we can get attached to as belonging to me, it's called self-portrait. And um, I don't actually have much time left, but I want to read a little bit of it. Because when I read it to the group in Cambridge, what they said, it's funny, so you know, feel free to laugh. But what they said um, was that just listening to it kind of loosened them up in a little bit. You know, just kind of hearing what we can be attached to. So, my room, my bed, my pillow, my mattress, my morning, my sheets, my walls, my ceiling, my lamp, my table, my bookcase, my books, my floor, my rug, my kitchen, my fridge, my stove, my window, my door, my lock, my keys, my stairs, my building, my mailbox, my foyer, my hallway, my street, my corner, my block, my stoop, my neighborhood, my station, my train, my car, my roof rack, my kayak, my toll booth, my metro card, my security guard, my elevator, my floor, my receptionist, my dread, my key card, my corporation, my logo, my cubicle, my hunger, <laughs> my deli, my desk, my inbox, my outbox, my email, my typing, my time card, my coffee, my milk, my bagel, my butter, my water, my watch, my day, my thoughts, my feelings, my dreams, my ambitions, my frustrations, my limitations, my connections, my potential, my skills, my training, my career, my veneer, my love, my lack, my snack, 
my God, my marriage, my kids, my doubts, my claustrophobia, my escape, my guilt, my divorce, my, di- my damage, my recovery, myself, my space, my time, my CDs, my rap, my Ricky Martin, my stereo, my speakers. My luck, my rules, my rights, my nature, my fault, my lie, my karma, my ladder, my fall, my cut, my stitches, my fever, my court case, my characterization, my deposition, my word, my term, my reply, my inflection, my insinuation, my statement, my adjective, my profanity, my driving, my passenger, my back seat, my front seat, my handbrake, my air conditioning, my parking, my friends, my peers, my problems, my issues, my therapist, my awkwardness, my balance, my routine, my complaints, my moods, my madness, my skin, my pores, my blemishes, (laughs) my power, my progress, my workout, my sweat, my calories, my protein, my carbs, my abs, my triceps, my towel, my laundry, my dirty laundry, my jealousy, my meanness, my resentment, my insult, my reflexes, my imagination, my creativity, my productivity, my selectivity, my opinions, my mantra, my habits, my humor, my anger, my religion, my belief, my freedom, my health care, my health, my crisis, my doctor, (laughs) my life, my privacy, my diary, my reflection, my face, my wrinkles, my age, my life expectancy, my old age, my youth, my birthday, my baseball, my hockey puck, my box seat, my game, my Super Bowl, my commentary, my prediction, my buddies, my male bonding, my, <laughs> my barbecue, <laughs> my sauce, my potatoes, my shampoo, my soap, my shaving cream, my briefcase, my portfolio, my broker, my secretary, my other line, my coffee break, my rejection, my concentration, my meditation, my breath, my yoga, my practice, my run, my stamina, my root, my 40s, my 50s, my 60s. (laughs) Just one more. (laughs) My alarm clock, my wake-up time, my light switch, my blanket, my sleep, my insect repellent, my dream, my tomorrow. (laughs) There was a lot more. I really wish I could have read it all. (laughs) But anyway, so examples of my... (laughs) understand, to fully understand non-self, we do have to meditate. We do need to meditate. That's the only way we are going to have this deeper kind of understanding. We have to understand it in the heart. We can read as much as we want, and we can figure things out as much as we want, as difficult a subject as it is. But we have to understand it in the heart, because it's only in the heart that the burdens can lift. It's only in the heart that what matters can happen, that the burdens in life can lift. When we do realize no self to any degree whatsoever, you know, any degree whatsoever, our lives are easier. Our lives are easier. Our relationships are easier. Our work life is easier. Everything is easier. When we see beyond self or around self or not limit ourselves to this sense of self, we stop clinging. And when we stop clinging, 
this is when we can truly begin to be happy. In inner silence and in wakefulness, this realization comes. This is why we need to meditate. In the hearing, there is just the hearing. In the seeing, there is just the seeing. In the thinking, there is just the thinking. Let me finish with something by Ajahn Chah. Uh, Somebody asked him this when they went to visit him in Thailand. They said, how old are you? Do you live here all year round? (laughs) These, you know, pesky Westerners. Anyway, what he said was, I live nowhere, he replied. There is no place you can find me. I have no age. To have age, you must exist, and to think you exist is already a problem. Don't make problems. Then the world has none either. Don't make a self. There's nothing more to say. (laughs) So there's nothing more to say. (laughs) All right, let's just sit for a moment or two. May all beings let go of limited ideas of who they are. May all beings let go of limited ideas about who others are. May all beings rest in awareness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.